by way of brief introduction is this. That as we live resurrection lives, we are people walking in a land of death that are life within it. Does this make sense? We are life in the midst of death. For we make our home in the land of the living. Eugene Peterson in his book, uh, Living the Resurrection, says this. The land of the living is dangerous country because a lot can go wrong. There is a lot of trouble brewing out there, and it's also in here. Resurrection takes place in the country of death, and that's where we Christians are stationed, isn't it? To affirm the primacy of life over death, to give witness to the connectedness and preciousness of all life, to engage in the practice of resurrection. So then, how do we practice resurrection? How do we practice and engage in a life of resurrection? Eugene Peterson goes on, we do this by gathering in congregations, by regularly worshiping before our life-giving God and death-defeating Christ and our life-abounding Holy Spirit. We do it by reading and pondering and teaching and preaching the word of life as it is revealed in our scriptures. We do it by baptizing men, women, and children in the name of the Trinity, by nurturing them into a resurrection life. We do it by eating the life of Jesus and the bread and the cup of the communion table. We do it by visiting prisoners, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, welcoming the stranger, healing the sick, working for justice, loving our enemies, raising our children, and doing our everyday work to the glory of God. And I've, I've thought so often, and you've heard these are themes that you hear in my sermons often, But I've thought so often as I read lists like that, you know, the same list that we might find in passages like Matthew 25, 31 to 46, uh, the same kind of things we see in the pastoral epistles, which tell us so little about how how we are to do church, but tell us an awful lot about how we're to take care for one another. I've noticed that all of the things that we do to live a resurrection life in the midst of the land of the living that is coexisting and commingling with death is all pretty pretty ordinary stuff, isn't it? Raising our kids, engaging, I mean, not that engaging the word of God is not extraordinary, but it's certainly doable for everybody. Coming to church, loving our neighbors, taking care of those around us who are hurting, whether that's sickness or suffering or need. It is all ordinary. I don't mean ordinary in that we see it all the time, although it's out there. But I mean ordinary in that we can all do it. It doesn't take specialized training, you know, like a nuclear physicist. And it doesn't take uh, specialized talents like a concert piano player, right? We can all do it. We can exhibit the resurrection life by walking down the path, uh, the pathway of death while being a light of life in our midst, in the way that we live. We can practice the resurrection life. I think this is why one of the most important acts of worship that we take place, that we do, that we participate in, in our worship services, um, when it was described, was a simple, it was started within the context of a simple meal in which Men and women would take simple bread and simple wine or grape juice and they would remember the life-giving act of Christ in the context of a meal. 
Now, I know when we come to the communion table week after week, it is not in the context of a meal. For if it was, you know, that half an ounce of grape juice and that little teeny square of bread would not do much nutritionally for you, right? And yet, we'll see in just a moment from the passages that we'll read about communion that the communion was taken in the beginning in the context of a meal, in the context of believers gathering together to reaffirm their commitment and to share their food and to take it together and to celebrate what God has done in the person of Jesus by taking his life, blessing us, uh, breaking his life, and giving it to us. In fact, these four verbs that Christ took, that he blessed, that he broke, and that he gave are the dominant words that Jesus uses when he takes communion. And really, we'll see that it is the dominant language of even other meals in which God takes, blesses, breaks, and gives. And so this morning, that's really where we're going. I want to take some time in the beginning, and I want to read to you the communion text, and I want to show you some themes, and then I'm going to apply them to you. I want to start by looking at this fourfold shape. It's called the shape of the liturgy. This language was developed by a man. His name was Gregory Dix. He was an Anglican monk, which is kind of interesting. And he noticed in the communion text, he wrote this paper back in 1941. He noticed in the communion text that these four words appeared over and over and over again. That Jesus took, that he blessed or gave thanks, that he broke and that he gave. And how these ideas form the liturgy, or the way that we worship and we gather together and are transformed by the word of God and by Christ himself. So let me start with the texts themselves, and you can just follow along on the screen as I read them to you. And I want you to see the themes, and I'm going to point out some other things as we go through thematically, but I want you to notice these dominant verbs. In Matthew 26, where Matthew recounts that first time when Jesus celebrated the Passover and instituted the Lord's Supper, he says, He recounts. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, for this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I would tell you I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. There are many themes in these verses. There's a theme of forgiveness of sins. There's a theme of hope when Christ will return and we will drink this table again. But here, the taking, the the giving thanks, the blessing, the breaking, and the giving back. Notice the pattern again in Mark 14 where Mark recounts that same event. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he offered it to them and said, and, and he offered it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Here, just like in Matthew, the same verbs. The same themes of remembering until Christ comes again and the same theme of covenant that he has made a new agreement with us shaped by his blood. 
And in Luke, the same pattern continues. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The same verbs. Here in the same context of a new covenant, of hope, of thankfulness, and now of remembrance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which is really the only teaching, extended teaching that there is in all of the New Testament on how we are to celebrate communion instructions. Ben Witherington, who wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians, will often say, if it were not for the the bad behavior of the Corinthians, we would have no official teaching on how we are to partake in the Lord's Supper. He said, Paul says, recounting that night in 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? See, this was in the context of a meal. They would gather together, but the rich who had plenty to eat were eating much and getting drunk, and the poor who had little were coming and watching the rich eat and get drunk while they have nothing. For the church has always been made up of a vast group of people, socioeconomically, racially. The church has always been a place because Jesus founded the church and on this message that all are welcome, right? Everyone is accepted. And that means people from all kinds of backgrounds. But just like then as it is today, people have a hard time understanding, accepting, and including those who don't look like them, right? Or don't, aren't in the same uh, group, sphere, whether that's socioeconomically, whether that's racially. And so many of our heroes of the past are people who've tried to break down these barriers, but those kind of barriers were first and primarily and only can be successfully broken down by those who understand the message of Jesus. Shall I praise you for this? Surely not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. It is not just, however, the communion texts that give us the context of these four verbs, these four, sh- the shape of the liturgy that Christ takes, that he, gi- or that he gives thanks or blesses, that he breaks and that he gives back. In the text that we looked at a little bit last week on Luke chapter 24, there is this story about these two men on the way to Emmaus. And you'll remember this if you were here last week. And these two men are talking about the recent events of the crucifixion and Jesus suddenly appears in their midst. But these men who had known Jesus beforehand, did not recognize Jesus there. This too is a theme of the resurrection text, that often people come into contact with the resurrected Christ and don't recognize him for who he is. 
It happens on the road to Emmaus. It also happens on the beach from John chapter 21. We looked at this last week when Jesus tells them to put their nets on the other side and he catches 153 fish. Remember, I joked about the trivia of that. That's fun to me. Jesus is often not recognized in his post-resurrection state. And I've thought about that. How often do we not recognize the resurrected Christ when he is at work in our midst? And yet, it is not always the communion table, for in the, the road to Emmaus, when the men get to Emmaus, they invite this unknown man who turns out and who is Jesus into their house to eat a meal with them, not to take communion or the Lord's table, but to simply share a meal with them. And Jesus, unusually, this is very unusual, he accepts their invitation, but notice how the text makes it look like Jesus is actually the host of the meal. When he was at the table with them, he, Jesus, took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. And you know what the next verse says? This is Luke 24, 30, but you can look it up. Luke 24, 31 says, and then their eyes were open and they saw him for who he was. He took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. This pattern is also given in the feedings of the 4,000 and the feedings of the 5,000. These are famous accounts of times when Jesus took small amounts of food and divided it miraculously to feed five or 4,000 people. Many commentators think and scholars think this is just the men. It's just recounting the men who were fed. But there were many other women and children. They're saying it's probably even more people than just the five or the 4,000. In the first account where this happens, it's in Matthew chapter 14. And Matthew does not recount the same details that John does in his, um, his account of the same event in John chapter 6. But here's basically what happens. Jesus has gone off to a solitary place to pray, and the crowds followed Jesus, as they often did. And when the crowds got there, Jesus taught them. And at the end of his teaching, the people are very hungry. But this is a massive crowd of people, four or 5,000, depending on the event. There's two different times. And so Philip comes up to Jesus, one of his disciples, and says, what should we feed them? And Jesus says, well, give them something to eat. The people are hungry. And Philip said, even if I could, it would take over a year's wages to feed these kind of, or over half a year's wages, more money than I would make in six months to feed this amount of people one time. And all they would get is just a bite. They wouldn't even be satisfied in full. And the text tells us that John that a little boy then comes forward and he's got two small fish and five small barley loaves. Barley is the cheap bread, you know, the wonder bread. He comes forward. Jesus takes the food and look at what it says. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gives thanks. He broke the loaves. He gave it to the disciples and the disciples gave it to the people and they were all satisfied. In one account, at the feeding of the 5,000 and 4,000, I looked this up and I can't remember. One of the times when he feeds the 5,000, there's, I think, seven baskets full of food left. And the other time, there's 12. can't remember which one's which. Not only do these small amount of fish and bread feed everyone, there's leftovers for everybody to take back. Jesus takes, Jesus blesses, Jesus breaks, and Jesus gives back. 
So what does this all mean for us this morning? What does this all mean for us this morning? First, Jesus takes what we bring to him. And to me, this is such an encouraging teaching. You may think I'm, I'm reading into the text. I do not believe so. Jesus always accepts us as we come to him just as we are. He takes wherever we're at. He takes us with all of our virtues and sins, with all of our strengths and our weaknesses. Whenever I think of this, I always think of, uh, you know, remember in school when you play pickup games, maybe in gym, or maybe you just organized it yourself, and there was always that line, and two captains would be named, and the two captains would look on the crowd, right, of the line of men and boys and girls, not men and women, boys and girls, and they would start taking them. You know, and if you were a captain and you're playing basketball, you're always trying to take the fast, tall, athletic one, right? And if you weren't athletic, you're standing in that line, fearful and afraid, thinking to yourself, I know I'm not going to get taken, you know? Sometimes nobody does. Somebody's, at the end, people are just taking what's left and they're thinking to themselves, he, he doesn't bring much value, but I guess there's no one else, so you can just sit the bench, right? And I think some of us look at this taking kind of like we're being lined up, but God... And his son Christ, who is also God, does not look at us that way. He does not look at us and think, you know, you have a lot of money so you could give it to the church, so I'll take you. He doesn't think to us, well, you've got really good musical talent, so I'll take you. You can help me, right? Because what is that lineup when you're choosing people to play basketball? What is that all about? It's all about figuring out how the person you're taking can benefit you. Does this make sense? You know what? God is completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need your musical ability. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need anything from you. He simply says, I want you. I take you. With all of your sins and all of your virtues, with all of your weaknesses and all of your strengths, there's not a single person, wherever we are, that Jesus says, I don't want you. Every single one of you. Jesus will take me. He will take you. He will take us. Yeah? But this pattern of, of worship doesn't stop with just Jesus taking us. Just saying, I accept you. Which, of course, he does. Jesus then does something further and something beautiful. He blesses us. Or he gives thanks for us. I've been thinking about this a little bit in the context of what we do every single time before we eat, you know, with grace, about how we bless the food. And I've thought about context. You know, you look at the food that you're about to eat, and you're looking at it, and and you get ready to to say a prayer of thanks, right? And you're looking at it, and sometimes we're more thankful for the food that we have before us than other times, right? No question. And yet, I think of that little boy with his two small fish and his cheap bread, you know, and Jesus takes it and he blesses it. You know, I've, I've even been, I've been thinking about the attitude that we take. The attitude that we take before God and the attitude that God takes before us. Our attitude. And I've been thinking about how there have been times in my life Just, uh, there have been times in my life, and I'm going to try to make this as kind and understandable as I can, but like, there's times when I have the same exact food 
and the company I'm eating with, with makes the food taste different than other times when it's the same exact food. I have a friend, his name is Mike. He's one of my closest friends, and he's Italian, and he's verbose, and he is always, always uh, incredibly complimentary of food. It's ridiculous. It's over the top. Food tastes better around Mike. Do you know what I mean? Oh, man, this is the best lasagna I've ever had. This bread is amazing. I can't believe it. This chocolate cake. You know, food just tastes better. And then we might make the same lasagna, same chocolate cake, same bread, and eat it with someone else who says... Thank you. That's nice. (laughs) Right? One of the things I love about my wife, she doesn't have to be nervous about what I'm about to say. One of the things I love about my wife is she has made the entire world more beautiful to me. You know? Because have you ever been and you, you go and see a sunset or a vista and you're there and you just see it and then you're there with someone you love and who appreciates beauty and the sunset's not the same. Does this make sense? Because the way we approach life changes life for us. And I've been thinking about that. Jesus blesses what we give to him. He takes us with all of our virtues and all of our sin. He takes us with all of our strengths and all of our weaknesses. And he does not say, I guess I'll accept you. I have a lot to offer you. I can make you better. Of course, he can do that. But with all of you, right? With all of you, Jesus says, I'm thankful for you. And I bless you. This language of blessing and thankfulness is really tied together. It's tied together on a scriptural level. And there's, an, there's this element of thankfulness where we're just giving gratitude. And there's also this element of how gratitude or blessing transform the thing, transforms the thing that we as being thanked. Does this make sense? That blessing and gratitude go together, but it's not just being thankful. There is an element that gratitude changes the thing we receive, just like lasagna is not, doesn't always taste the same, even if it's the same. It changes the way we receive it. And so Christ, so Jesus, gives thanks for you. He gives thanks for me. Can you ever, ever imagine Jesus those 2,000 years ago with that little 10-year-old boy or however old he was, we're not told, going up to that little boy with those two little fish and those five little barley loaves and saying, I guess if that's all you have to offer, we'll take it. You see what I mean? Two fish is all you can come up with, boy? Can you imagine Jesus looking at you and saying, that's it? The problem is, most of you can, right? You imagine Jesus looking at you and saying, that's it. And it's not true. You cannot imagine Jesus telling that little boy, that's it. But it's so easy for you to think to yourself, God must look at me and say, that's it. And it's not true. Because what you feel is real, but it is not always true. Jesus will take you wherever you are, and he blesses you. 
He gives thanks for you in a way that transforms you. The third thing that Christ does for you and for me and for us sounds less appealing, but it's not. He breaks us, right? Jesus breaks what we bring to him. And just like at that dinner table, we often present ourselves on our best behavior, right? We present ourselves to others that we don't know all that well as self-sufficient on our best manners. And when somebody asks us how we're doing, what do we say? We are fine. It's just, uh, it's just muscle memory, you know, in the mouth. How you doing? I'm good. And yet, so much of this I am fine or I'm good is just, what is it? Surface posturing, right? It's just surface posturing. But before Christ, if we really have a relationship with him, and if we really have a relationship with anybody for that matter, truly, there, will, there is no surface posturing. There is no surface level. For Christ does not permit us or allow us to stay at a surface level. Jesus is after what is within us. Does this make sense? He looks at our insides. And he's not revolted, but that is what he's after. He looks at what is inside and he exposes what is on the inside. A couple, I don't know, a year or two ago, I was watching Shark Tank I used to like to watch that. I probably still would, but I just got out of the habit for no other reason than I don't think about it anymore. But I was watching Shark Tank a couple years ago, and they had this one person come on. It was a lady who had created this mirror that when you looked in the mirror, you looked slimmer, right? <laughs> Which sounds awesome, except it's not true, right? <laughs> and... You know, of course, when she was talking about her slim-looking mirror, she kept saying, but I'm making people feel better about themselves. And of course, the Shark Tank investors were saying to themselves, yeah, through lies, I'm not investing in that. And she goes, she didn't understand. She kept saying to herself, how could you not see how I'm helping people and how you can help me help people? They look in the mirror and they see something different. And they said, but they don't see reality, right? Jesus is like this mirror that we look into, but we really see reality. Not in a way that revolts him, and not in a way that should discourage or, you know, paralyze us. But we see what is really within us. And in seeing who we really are, there is a breaking of our pride. There is a breaking of our self-sufficiency. And in this breaking, we are opened up into new life, the life of resurrection. Do you remember what David says in Psalm 51, right? Remember this? A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise, right? For God will accept you. No matter where you are, he takes you, he blesses and gives thanks for you, and he breaks you which isn't so much an active like him taking like a stick over his knee and breaking it as so much as holding a mirror up to us so that we really see who we are, so that the facade of our self-sufficiency and pride can be broken. And in this brokenness, he puts us back together, which is all about the last thing. Jesus gives back what we bring to him. For Jesus 
is all about restoration and healing, not about accumulating slaves, right? Jesus does not take our lives so that he can use them for his leveraging of his own power and his own might. You want to know why? Because Jesus is omnipotent, which is a big theological word that means he's all-powerful, right? Not only is he omnipotent, he's omnipresent, which means he can be everywhere at once. He is completely self-sufficient. He's omniscient, which means all-knowing. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, self-sufficient, and he doesn't need you or me. And we, in our belief, in our worship, do not make Jesus stronger or weaker by the presence or the lack thereof. He is not accumulating slaves by taking us, but he is transforming, restoring, and healing our lives so that he can give our lives back so that we might experience life in the land of the living. Jesus gives back our lives. He blesses them. He breaks them. And in the doing, they are not the same for they are changed. Right? Amazing grace How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Yeah? Let me pray for you.